I really do want to invite you to take your Bibles and open it to Esther chapter 3. Um, it's very important as we study our Bibles that we have an open Bible before us so we can follow along, look at the text, see if what, um, what is proclaimed from the pulpit is, is in fact what is written. Um, and that is what made the Bereans so, so noble is that they, they listened to what Paul said and then they searched the scriptures to see whether or not these things were so. And I hope all of you have that attitude, you know, uh, really leaning forward in your soul and listening carefully. And, um, and even, even if you just agree with everything, then you would also just at least have listened well, right? And that is the blessing that we want from the Lord as well as we listen to his word. So let's open to Esther 3. But before we do anything else, would you just bow your head and pray with me? Oh Lord, we come to you. We thank you for our, our wonderful worship, singing that we could have given to you. Thank you for your precious, precious word. Lord, your word is a light in the darkness, a hope in our suffering, comfort in our, our deepest distress. It's our deepest need, Lord, for through your word we hear your voice and your, your love in our hearts. Holy Spirit, please fill me, um, control my speech, my words, and I pray for the listeners here as well, Lord, that you would please open their ears and their hearts to hear what you want to tell them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are already in Esther 3, and uh, if you know the story of Esther so far, Esther chapters 1 and 2 has ended on a high note. Esther is queen, Mordecai saved the king's life. Looks like it's going uphill, right? It looks like in God, in a mysterious way, is busy blessing his people, in, even in a pagan nation. It looks like God is with them. But in chapter 3, things turn out for the worst. It goes quickly from the mountaintop to the valley of the shadow of death, quite literally. Now, the contrast between the end of chapter 2 and how our chapter opens is very striking. So just look up again at chapter 2, verse 23. How did it end? It says, When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Remember that this was Mordecai who made known the plot, and now this good deed that he has done is written down in the Chronicles. And we would have expected, if we just read on to chapter 3 verse 1, to read this. 3 verse 1. After these things, King Asuerus promoted Mordecai. That's what you would have expected. Because why? He just saved the king's life. What do kings do when you save his life? They promote you. They reward you. Is that what we read? No, look at it. Look at it again. It says, the king promoted Haman the Agagite. Not only Haman, look at later in verse 10 as well. The king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. So not only is Mordecai completely forgotten in this promotion or this reward, but his enemy is promoted instead. Not just his enemy, the Bible calls him the enemy of the Jews. We'll soon see why. Now, I wonder how many of you have felt this, right, or have experienced this in your own life. You have done well. You worked hard. You trusted God. You did the right thing. Your work made your boss look good. And then a mere pat on the back. Well done, right? No promotion, no permanent job. 
you just feel forgotten. You feel that this is unfair. This is not how it's supposed to go, right? It feels like your, your life or your future lies in the hands of random events by random people with a mere flip of the coin. And you just hope it falls on your side this time. Beloved, if we're honest with ourselves, this is the world you and I are living in. What Job's friends got wrong is that sometimes the wicked do prosper in this life. Sometimes those who hate God go to the top of the corporate ladder or the success or whatever. And yet, don't forget what we said in the beginning of Esther. Who is the one who raises up rulers and puts them down? Who has that authority? Who has the final say in who gets the privileged positions, the, the authority? Romans 13 verse 1, it's a verse we should all know. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Remember in Daniel, we saw the same thing. In Daniel, we said that God raises up rulers and he, he has the authority to put rulers down. So let's be honest, when we look at our world from our perspective, it really does, doesn't feel like God is in control. It feels like random chaos. The book of Ecclesiastes, I believe, captures this frustration that we often feel when we see the randomness of the world. When you read and study Ecclesiastes, you'll see that there's life under the sun. And life under the sun is really from our perspective, how it looks like things are going according to our, our world, our, what we see. But there's also life above the sun. So, for example, listen to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11 says, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those of knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, that is the perspective from life under the sun. We are living under the sun, and that's how it feels. And even the believer, even those who trust God and fear God, sometimes wrestle with this reality. As Psalms 37 and 73, two Psalms where the, the psalmists were wrestling, why, God, does it look like you've forgotten us? The, the wicked prosper and the righteous are killed. How does that work? How is that fair? But beloved, it does matter because there is a life above the sun. There is the eternal perspective. There's a God who rules over his whole creation. There will be a judgment day in which every person, both the living and the dead, will have to give an account to the judge of the universe for how they've lived their lives. And that's why we need this constant reminder of eternity, of heaven, of hell, of judgment day, of Jesus' second coming. Because we have amnesia, right? It takes one day, Monday morning, it's gone. <laughs> we forget about it. But we shouldn't. And the book like Esther reminds us of these truths. Now, consider the man who is promoted. We, we might read that and think it's a trivial detail. Look again at verse 1. Who is this man, Haman? After these things, King Asuerus promoted Haman, what? The Agagite. Okay, now, we might think, oh, he's an Agagite. Let's go on. It's like, no, 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 pause. That is a crucial detail that the author wants us to pick up 
to, to bring up the tension where this man comes from and where Mordecai comes from. Remember, there was an ancient conflict between Israel and the Amalekites. And more specifically, we are reminded of this conflict when we look at chapter 2, verse 5. Just turn back there again, chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. That takes us all the way back to 1 Samuel 15 with another son of Kish, a Benjaminite, and another Agag, another Amalekite. Listen to 1 Samuel 15 verse 3. This is the background of this verse. It says, 1 Samuel 15 verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing on the way when they came out, up out of Egypt. Now go, strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This command was given because the Amalekites attacked Israel when they were at their weakest. They came out of Egypt, and what would inevitably happen is there would be some of the, of the company lagging behind. And the Amalekites went and they killed those people lagging behind. That's how wicked they were. Listen to Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you and on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So God commanded the first king of Israel, King Saul, son of Kish, to, to go and do this. Instead, what did the king do instead? What did King Saul thought? No, God surely has made a mistake this time. I'm going to take matters in my own hands. We read the account, uh, the rest of the account in 1 Samuel 15 verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people of the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. He spared Agag. And we can assume that he has spared other people as well. And that's why, we read it. that's why we have Esther. Because of that disobedience, that sin of one man 500 years ago, we have the, the tension and the story of Esther. If Saul was obedient, if Saul trusted the Lord and did not lean on his own understanding, we would not have the book of Esther. That, this pro, Haman wouldn't have existed but Haman, as a descendant of, Agag, of, of, of the king Agag, is because of one man's sort of, kind of, half-hearted obedience to God, thinking he knows best. So, loved ones, can we just appreciate God's wisdom in his commandments when he gives that to us? God could see down the corridors of generations, knowing what would happen if Saul was disobedient, what would be the consequences if Saul did not carry out the will of the Lord? What a lesson for us today, in our age, in our culture. Our sin and our disobedience in this generation will have devastating consequences for the generations to come. Beloved, listen to me. Don't compromise with your sin. Don't think that your sin 
is something to be taken lightly or that you can half obey God. That's what Saul did. Saul said, look, I did obey. Look, I did destroy kind of all of them. Right? And then Samuel said, what is this bleating of sheep? What is the bleating of sheep that I hear in my ears? Even something like half obedience is disobedience to God. So let us not ask, will it work? Will what we do work? Will it have an effect? But rather we should say, what does God say? What does his word tell us? Let's just do that and let's trust the Lord with the results and with the consequences. I've seen this, this to give an example of how this can look like practically. I've seen this often in parenting. What do new parents say? I'm just not going to do what my parents did. <laughs> okay. Whatever I'm going to do, I don't care what I'm doing. I'm just not doing it what they, how they did it. And then what happens is their kids grow up and they say, I'm just not going to do it like my parents did it. And it's, they go to the other extreme and it's this pendulum, generation after generation of one extreme to another extreme. Instead, that pendulum must rest when we say, I don't care what my parents did. What does the Bible say? How should parenting be done biblically? And I'm just going to do that. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to listen to what the culture tells me how I should do it or how other people tell me I should. I'm going to do it the way God says. And then the cycle stops. We know that famous verse, right? Um, The Lord visits the the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. But how, how many generations does he bless of the righteous? To the thousands. If we trust him in this generation, if we would be faithful now, if we do not bend and compromise on the word of God, if we take it as it is, we trust it as it is, we obey it, we will bless thousands of generations to come with our faithfulness. So we learn from even just the opening verses of chapter 3, life is sometimes unfair, sin has serious consequences. Look what happens next. We're going to move now much, much quicker through the text. Look at verses 2 to 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? So notice what is at stake here with Mordecai's decision not to pay homage. This was not just Haman's decision. This was the king's command that they should bow down. Everybody was commanded by the king. And this was a public act because as Mordecai was doing this, the people around him was like they were bowing down, looking at Mordecai like, what are you doing? Why aren't you bowing down? Why are you not obeying the king's command? They did this for a while. And then look at verse 4. And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So now here commentators debate, why, why did Mordecai not bow down, right? What was motivating Mordecai and was it right? Some say it was because he was stubborn or he was foolish. Others say it was his motive as a Jew to not break the first and the second commandment, not to bow down to idols or to worship anybody else except God. Still others say it was just simply this deep-seated um, conflict or hostility in his heart towards towards Haman, knowing his lineage, knowing he comes from Agag, and knowing he comes from the line of Kish and the Benjaminite. The only clue we're given in the text is what? Verse 4 at the end, because he was a Jew. That's all the text tells us. 
Now, I think, here's my view, I want to give it to you, is I think it's unlikely that he was thinking of the first and second commandment because it wasn't wrong to pay homage to a king or to bow down to a king. Jews did that all the time. They didn't see that as breaking of the first and second commandment. And also, it doesn't seem like Mordecai is that concerned about keeping the law when you think of chapter 2. All the compromises he's already made with Persia, with the kingdom, with Esther, with Esther as well. So I think it's more likely correct that he simply remembers the background of Haman and himself. And when he sees Haman, he just, something in him refuses to bow down. I can't pay respect to this enemy. Now, whether or not that was wise or unwise, the text doesn't say. It certainly looks like something that it could have been a gray area, right? It could have been something over which faithful Jews could have disagreed about. But whatever the conclusion is, because of that choice leads to the evil plot of Haman. Look at verses 5 to 6. It says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Okay, now, won't you say, wow, that's a little bit over the top. I mean, it's one thing to hate one person. It's another thing to say, I'm going to destroy all the Jews in all the realms of the, of the kingdom. Right? But we know, if we know our Bibles well, we, see, we really see what's behind Haman's decision, what's behind him. It's demonically inspired to wipe out the covenant people of God and with it, the hope of the Messiah coming. Is that not what Herod did in Matthew, in chapters 2? Remember what Matthew did? There was another king. What happens? Kill all the boys under two years old. What, what was the desire? To destroy the Messiah. We see that in Pharaoh, in Egypt. Once the Israelites were too strong, they kill all the boys. Why, why is this happening? The devil is trying to swallow up the seed of the women. Remember, God said to the women, to the serpent, um, right, you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. So the devil knows someone's going to come that's going to destroy me. I need to destroy the, the Israelites. That's his plan. This is yet another plan, another attempt to try and stop God's plan, to stop God's redemptive story from going on. And notice what is really at stake. At the end of verse 6, we see something. All the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. How big is his kingdom? Remember, it is 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Guess what city that includes? The city of Jerusalem. So this plot affects the Jews in Persia. It affects the Jews in Jerusalem. It affects the Jews everywhere. All those Jews who decided to go back to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the wall, are under this plot to be killed and annihilated. So if this plot goes through, that would snuff out God's plan to save the world. And the date of this plot is chosen randomly by Lot. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So these lots were almost like our modern dice, 
right? And they seemingly have done this to consult the gods to choose the date. So this is a pagan ritual, right? And it, they cast it on the first month, and it fell on the 12th month. So there was an 11-month gap now between the, the day they wanted to enact it and the day it's going to be executed. And so Haman goes to the king, and notice again the mark of the devil in how he speaks. Very clever, full of truths, half-truths, and lies. Look at verse 8. Look, look carefully there. It says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Notice he doesn't even tell the king who these people are. He just says, generally speaking, there's a certain people, don't have to really worry about who they are. But then he tells the truth. Here's the truth. He says, their laws are different from those of every other people. True. God's laws are very, very different, right? Even as Christians, right? When that's why we are called the light of the, earth, the, the world, the salt of the earth, because our laws, the way we live our lives is completely different. But then he tells a half-truth. Look at the half-truth. He says, they do not keep the king's laws. Now, of course, he's thinking of Mordecai, who refused to, to obey the king's law to bow down to him. But that's, that's not true. That's not what characterized Jews. Generally speaking, the Jews, I believe, just as Christians should be, right, were good law-abiding citizens. They were productive members of the society. They respected those in authority. They submitted to those under, over them. But because Mordecai does this, surely all the Jews are exactly the same. All of them break the king's laws. All of them are like this Mordecai now, right? Now, this is just a side note. This is, that's actually a logical fallacy, okay? Which I think you and I commit way too often, way too frequently. So this is the fallacy. Because one person in a group acts a certain way, you conclude that everybody in that group acts the same way. That's a fallacy. It goes something like this, okay? So, because one Christian was hateful and judgmental towards you, therefore, all Christians are hateful and, and disrespectful. It's an impossible deliverance. They are as good as dead. But here is the detail you shouldn't miss. It's a very, it's a very slight detail. When were the scribes summoned and sent out by the king? Look at verse 12 again. Okay, verse 12 gives us the date. It says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Now, the 13th day of the first month is one day before the Jews celebrated the Passover. The day before the Passover. Okay. Okay. So, the day before the Passover. It's okay, Valia. I think you can, you can leave it there. Okay. Okay, thanks, Billy. I appreciate it. Listen to Exodus. The day before you celebrate that, 
you get a decree that you 11 months from now, you, your children, everybody are, are going to be annihilated and nothing can be done by that. Nothing can be done for that. It's a day before you celebrate another impossible deliverance that God did in history, in Egypt. Remember, the Passover is a reminder of what God did, how the Jews were the slaves of the Egyptians. And through miracles, through the impossible means, God has saved his people finally through the blood of the Lamb. That's how their lives were spared. Will God do it again? Will they now choose to respond with fear, unbelief, or doubt, or will they respond with faith, trusting God? And as we end chapter 3, we think of another impossible deliverance that involved you and me. There was another scenario which couldn't be repealed. It couldn't be taken away. It was an impossible deliverance. You and I, we have sinned against a holy God. And because this God is holy, he cannot let any sin go unpunished. If you're guilty, it's over. The guilty must be punished. It's irrevocable. It's written with the same firmness as it was written as the edict of the king of Persia. God will by no means clear the guilty. The disciples of Jesus got this message quite clear. Remember what, when Jesus said, it's easier for the camel to enter into the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The, Jew, uh, the disciples got the point. They said, then who can be saved? What did he say? With man, this is impossible. But all things are possible with God. Our Savior continued, right? With God, all things are possible. Okay, Lord, how? How can you do this? How can you save me? I've sinned. I've sinned over and over again. I'm guilty. Well, God did the impossible. He took our sins. He took our record of debt. And he nailed it to his own son on the cross. That's how he paid this impossible debt. Colossians 2 verse 13 captures the idea so well. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So now when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we remember what Jesus has done, as the fulfillment of the Passover, we can think of our impossible deliverance. And even if we are to be slaughtered like sheep, we can say like the three friends of Daniel, our God can deliver us. He will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. He will keep us. Even if the serpent blows threats, the dragon um, blows threats of persecution tempts us to to lies and to destroy our even if it looks like our lives are in the hands of rulers who hate God who hate his people we can say our lives are in the hands of the one who said he is one with the father and no one can snatch them out of his almighty hands beloved do you believe that do you rest in that when the wicked prosper when you are forgotten, when persecution comes, when life seems unfair and chaotic, 
Do you remember that your king is on the throne and he has already done the most impossible thing you can imagine? Saved you from your sins. Let's pray together. Father, we we confess that when we contemplate the possibility of persecution that we, we do think of it in fear and trembling. Lord, we have not really, I think, experienced this in such a degree as our brothers and sisters across the world are experiencing it, even as we are gathered here this evening. But Lord, you have already done the the more difficult thing, and that is to give your only Son, to not spare him for our sins. Lord, even if we are killed, even if you do not spare our lives, Lord, it's death is merely the door into your presence. You have helped us to overcome our fear of death because you've destroyed the one who has the power of death, the works of the devil. Death is dead because Christ, you are risen. There is life above the sun and Lord, help us as believers to keep our eyes above the sun to our Lord Jesus, the author. Oh, and we thank you that you are also the perfecter of our faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.